Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Broadcasting from an undisclosed location. From a secret hunting spot known only to him. And the guy who told him about it. And possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics. I am now on week two of no hunting. As some of you may have heard, I had a, a minor surgery a couple of weeks ago. And the old doc said, you're not hunting or doing anything strenuous on that, that leg for four to six weeks. Now, I don't know whether I want to be that guy. I think, oh, I'll be right, you know. Two weeks in, I'm hard enough. Go out, get back on it, rip some stitches or something, go back to the dock, face palm. You were told. Do I sit out my sentence? Do I? It's going to be tough. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, 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 know it's, I know on the scheme of things, it's not a major problem to have. But it's tough. I really want to get out there. I'm really missing um, these mainly after work short hunting trips. I'm lucky enough to be able to do uh, at least once a week. And it's, it's not so much that I've had two weeks without it. It's that there's another two to four weeks to go, you know. Anyway. I read today that KFC in Japan are going to an all-you-can-eat buffet style in some of their restaurants. <laughs> and I just thought, whoa, I can't imagine that working here. What would you charge in some places in New Zealand for an all-you-can-eat KFC buffet? Things could go horribly, horribly wrong. I'm not one of these people that thinks there should be taxes on everything. You know, Colonel Sanders ain't forcing it down anyone's throat. But all you can eat, really? Oh, and under fours were free. <laughs> oh, the media storm that could cause. I just don't think they're going to do it here. I, I think restaurant brands will think better of it when they get out the old back of the envelope and work out what it's going to cost them. I just don't think it's going to happen. Look, I got an email from Slain Dusk. And I don't read all the emails I get on the show. It would just take up most of the show. But he made a point. And I want to, I want to read it because I, I like to be corrected. Just listen to your interview with Nicole. Good to see a constructive discussion happening. One thing, though, that struck me was your offhand comment about child deaths in the U.S. We, as gun owners in New Zealand, should not throw our U.S. kin under the bus, especially with incorrect data. Just quickly, I don't know if I quoted any stats, but check out the CDC stats for 2012 and child deaths. There were 22 accidental firearms deaths of children under 14, compared to 119 bike accidents, 58 freezing to death, 708 drownings, and they're all tragic, but high rates of accidents. Yeah, but high rates of accidents just continues, continues to perpetuate the false narrative that the, the U.S. is suffering from a daily bloodbath from evil guns. I live in the U.S., so I'm seeing firsthand what's happening here, and I hope we can have a constructive progress at home without the partnership and animosity that is par for the course here look i actually went and 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 slain went on to give me some links to some stats and he's quite right as deaths happen accidental gun deaths it is way down and i it was an offhand remark 
Um, unfortunately, I couldn't quite draw out the stat I was looking for, and that was very much around how many young children were killing young children or shooting young children. And look, it was an offhand remark, and I stand somewhat corrected. Um, I think one is too many, and I'm sure Slane would agree with that. I don't, uh, but I suppose, uh, yeah, I, I agree. So Slane, I, I apologise. I, I did throw our US gun owners under the bus, and I'm surprised I didn't get more emails or any emails from any other American citizens because normally... I love our American counterparts. They do send me uh, an awful lot of um, feedback, uh, generally generally positive, but certainly correcting anything that I say. But thank you very much. And to all of you, I love getting your feedback. I really enjoy reading your emails. I enjoy what you have to say. And I have to look down my Facebook message feed, and there's probably 30 other people this week that have emailed me that I really haven't. Um, I've got back to almost all of them, I think. Um, but certainly, I, I can't read them all out on the show, but please keep sending it. Um, a lot of the time, that's where the best show ideas come from. This week's interview is with somewhat of a stalwart of New Zealand firearms and hunting. His name is Paul Clark, and Paul joins me by phone. And rather than me go down his list, I'm going to let Paul introduce himself. How are you, mate? Very good. Um, welcome from you know our capital city, or upper half of the part of it, and <laughs> yeah. a nice... Really sunny spring day. Yeah, now, Paul, it was your birthday the other day. Correct, yep, yeah, uh, 65 and still keen to pull triggers. Yeah, well, that's right. And so you've clocked over another year. Now, 65 years. I understand you've been involved in shooting since a, well, what was a very young age. How did it all start, Paul? Well, it's really quite simple. Some people are born to kick rugby balls or something similar. <laughs> yep. I was born to pull triggers and hunt. It's really quite simple. Um, you know, and I've just always followed my, my passion. I mean, I've always been keen on the outdoors. Mm. But you started from, what, 14, I heard? Uh, fired the first shot when I was about 11. Yeah. Um, joined the Karori Rifle Club and started long-range target shooting when I was about 15. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously fired a few guns in the Cadet Corps because St. Pat's College Silverstream had its own Rifle ranges, because it still owns a few thousand acres of farmland here in the Hutt Valley. Yep. And, um, you know, we had, you know, bring gun ranges, 303 ranges, etc. So, yep, uh, was well into it. And um, luckily I had parents who were quite keen. So they, with some money that I'd saved from after school jobs, I had my first firearms, admittedly not technically quite legal, but I had them by the time <laughs> I was 15. Yep. Um, but in those days... Remember, you could hitchhike around New Zealand with a rifle over your shoulder and nobody cared a shit and nobody thought it was bad. Mm. And look, I think in some places in New Zealand, uh, I know some rural towns I've been in, you still see people walking down the street with a you know, a 303 or a 308 over their shoulder and clearly just come out of the hills and they're, they're heading for the, the local you know, hunting and fishing store or, or gun shop. Um, but certainly, probably... Yeah, certainly the the larger populations around New Zealand, you don't see that sort of thing anymore, do you? No, you don't, um, unfortunately. And the interesting thing is that as I, my understanding of the law is that that is still legal to do that. If you're going to a lawful purpose, mm-hmm. the fact that you've got a rifle over your shoulder to go to the gun shop or you're walking home or on a push bike or a mountain bike, because people now hunt for mountain bikes too in places, mm-hmm. um, is as far as I understand, things legal. Now, Mr. Plod may not quite agree with that, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that doesn't mean that it is illegal. Yeah, um, well, let's. Um, we might move on from that subject before um, I have. I mean, I can I can just hear a, a few people um, face palming right now. I can hear them around the country. Um, look, look, Paul. You've, you're, you're the managing director of. NZ Ammo or New Zealand Correct. Ammunition yep. Company, and what a company! I, I, I was fortunate enough to know this before the interview, and and trawled around your website, and right. some of my favourite brands keep popping up. Tell me a little bit about NZ Ammo. Well, okay, I um, was of a you know going to be a gunsmith at one stage, and I did a a tool making apprenticeship because that um, seemed the uh, you know, a good way to get into gunsmithing. Hmm. But I pretty quickly realised, particularly in the late 60s, early 70s, there was no money in it. And I ended up 
going deer culling and traveling the world for a few years and things like that. And um, went to America in 81 for about four months and actually went to see Sierra Bullets, Douglas Barrels and one or two other people. And finally um, brought in my first shipment of Sierra Bullets uh, in September uh, 83 because um, I used to use them as a hand loader and I thought they weren't being sold very well in New Zealand. And um, so New Zealand Ammunition Company started September 83 part-time. You know, you've got to start somewhere in business. And um, I've always liked good stuff. As I said to our Prime Minister the other year at a, at a dinner, John, there's enough shit in the world without me adding to it. <laughs> and um, no, that's I, I actually said that. Um, not to be insulting, because that's my philosophy of life. Um, if you're going to do it, do it well or, or piss off and walk away. Mm. Um, because there's too much crap out there. And if you look at our product lines, there's virtually nothing out of Asia. Um, and uh, we only have the better brands from Europe and North America mm. uh, and Scandinavia. Because, you know, it's too hard to... Um, you know, or too easy rather to get it wrong. You get out in the hills, and the only deer you see is two fifty yards away on a slip, and all you can see is a quarter of it anyhow. But you know it's a deer. Don't worry about that. Mm. And you use some cheap crappy ammo, and all you do is gut shoot the bloody thing, or the bullet doesn't expand even if you do get it hit it right, and it it, it runs off and you never get it. Um, and that's not a good look. It's not fair to the deer. It's not fair to the sport. And you're not even fair to yourself because if you you know if you had it all backwards, you've taken a weekend off to go in the hills or maybe a few more days. You might have flown in or walked in. And you spent thousands of dollars on gear anyhow, one way or another, and perhaps a bit of time maintaining your fitness levels or getting them up there again. And yes, you did save a dollar around on the ammo and wasted a whole bloody three or four days. What the shit? That's crazy. Um, it's interesting because I've made this point before on this very show that. I think it's absolutely crazy that a guy will come in with with a, you know, Sarko Bavarian or something. You know, something you go, wow, what a really nice firearm, and it's got a, a beautiful Swarovski scope. He's spent some serious serious money, and then he's putting, you know, sort of a house brand budget, no frills ammunition into it, and then wonder why it's not grouping. But in your experience, Paul, what makes good ammo? Um, people, uh, but. You've got to be a perfectionist because there's many stages in its manufacture and many components where it can go wrong. You know, is the powder consistent? Is it the correct burning rate for the cartridge? Is the case well made? Did some toolmaker, you know, do a good job in making the dies that make the case? And then when those dies were in a press, did they actually care what they made? So people are totally committed, dedicated people and are intrinsic to this process. And you've got to have a passion for perfectionism. Um, and I have that myself. Um, I was even put on drugs at high school because I was too perfect and I wouldn't do things if I couldn't do it perfectly. No, yeah. um, <laughs> no seriously. Yeah. I, I um, was diagnosed as a teenager with excessive perfectionist tendencies. Um, seriously, I'll say that about myself. Gee. And that's and that's manifested itself as a toolmaker. Mm-hmm. Several times I told bosses, no, I'm not going to do that because it's not going to work or it's going to be work for not very long and I only make good stuff and if you don't like it, I'll just piss off. Because um, I've always been quite capable of standing up for myself um, you know, and taking on people uh, you know, I told a Russian border guard in 1975 when he saw I had a Russian address of a girl I'd met in Russia. I asked him what he was going, what the fuck he was going to do about it, <laughs> and he just looked at me and burst out laughing. <laughs> the people I was with were metaphorically shitting bricks. You didn't, people weren't known for taking on armed Russian border guards, but this guy pissed me off. So, yeah, um, maybe <laughs> you could say that's a suicidal tendency. But the point is, I, <laughs> I got away. <laughs> yeah. 
but I, but I got away with it. Yep. I'm still here. Mm. Um, I mean, I took on the entire trade union movement in 1979 with the help of one of the best QCs in the in the country, free of charge, to because of compulsory trade unionism. So you know, I've had my share of tilting at windmills. Um, I mean, not many people would single-handedly in 1979 taken on the whole trade union movement single-handedly. Mm-hmm. Over conscientious, you know, you, as I, I registered as a conscientious objector because I didn't want to join the trade union, and I single-handedly broke a strike that the engineering union called at Phillips, where I was working at the time. Um, you know, so uh, I've not been afraid to swim upstream. Right. And uh, speaking of, of swimming upstream, you've you've got an extensive hunting background as well, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I started off like most schoolboys did, shooting sparrows and that in the back garden with an air rifle. Yeah. Um, luckily then in the Hutt Valley, the hills behind Cannon Point beckoned and nobody cared a shit whether you went in there with a rifle. And with some other school friends on that, once I was 16, or thereabouts. Um, we used to leave home early in the morning on the school holidays and get over the back of Cannon Point to what they used to call near the woolshed. And usually we had, you know, a pig or something. Not many deer, to be fair. We were inexperienced in that respect. But, yep, uh, in fact, the best pig I've ever shot in New Zealand was shot at the, now where Tokyo Park houses are, are at the bottom of Cannon Point. Okay. And it was that big that we couldn't even lift it between two of us. Yeah, yeah. It was honestly the biggest pig, and the tusks were completely worn to um, half circles. The end of the tusks were half circles. They were radi- You know, they just worn off. Mm. Um, and, you know, you couldn't do that now, and the animal numbers aren't there to support it, but they were certainly there back in the 50s and 60s. Um, and, in fact, there used to be a guy right for Outdoor Magazine, I can't remember his name now, and he often featured stories about hunting pigs in a place called McGee's Gully, which was over the back of Cannon Point where we used to go, and obviously it was a good place in the 40s and 50s and 60s when we were there. Um, it's deteriorated now from a hunting perspective, but that's life. Um, the population, the urban sprawl and those things. And then, um, you know, I got into the Tauruas, did a lot of part-time meat shooting there in the late 60s, early 70s, because uh, there were so many deer, on a good day you would have definitely run out of ammo before you ran out of deer. Um, and, um, you know, then in 1974, I um, started with the New Zealand Forest Service as a deer colour in the Rohinis. Yep. Um, and just kept it up till about mid-75 when I went off to the Europe for a couple of years to see how the other half of the world functioned and where I did some climbing, because I used to do a fair bit of mountaineering too. And, um, yeah, came back here in 78, worked around the Hutt Valley for a while, and then rejoined the Forest Service as a deer colour in um, early 1980 and spent some time in the Uruwiras, and then uh, the best part of two years in the car workers. Okay, so uh, some, uh, some, certainly yeah. some places I've done some hunting as well. Uh, Paul... You're one of the foundation members of Corflu, and and part of this interview was that Nicole uh, McKee last week uh, mentioned it, and for a lot of firearms owners, unfortunately, it was probably the first time they heard about it, or first time they'd really had it brought to their attention. Can you tell us about that organisation and its goals? Okay, well, it, it ties up with the history of my own company. You know, we started part-time in 83, um, as you do, and... Uh, I went full-time, I think it was about 91, um, sorry, 92, my apologies, and um, anyhow, in 93, I got the agency for Benelli shotguns, and they started to sell quite well, because Benelli made a superb semi-auto shotgun, and still do make a superb semi-auto I shotgun. I own one. Good, mm. and um, seriously, um, I still own three. Yeah, and, I've uh, only got one, so yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> um... Well, you know, it is interesting that the Marine, U.S. Marine Corps told Congress get, to get stuff when they bought the M4 Benelli. Mm. And in America, that's akin to high treason double. Mm. Uh, to buy a shotgun that wasn't American-made. Yeah. Uh, but anyhow, what happened, of course, is we had Port Arthur in New Zealand. We'd, we'd already had Aramoana a few years previously, 
which led to the formation of SANS. And while I wasn't and haven't been a member of SANS, that's not a negative, I just wasn't for a whole variety of reasons. That was much really the first pro-firearm organisation in New Zealand. Um, and that came about because of Aaron Moana. But I knew quite a few people in it, so I was sort of almost a de facto member by, de- by de- you know, default. Um, and then we had Port Arthur in Australia, and, you know, the demon was semi-automatic firearms. And I became very concerned because I knew they were putting pressure on New Zealand government to do the same thing here. And I talked to quite a few people, and we decided to hold a meeting of interested people, which I think we held in either August or September of 96 here in Wellington. And that led to COLFO, the Coalition of Licensed Firearm Owners. Uh, we had a little bit of money, and we hired a very good strategic lobbyist who told us the big thing was you have to be in the tent with the government talking to them rather than on the outside just being, just listening or being talked to. You have to be part of the conversation. And we've followed that advice pretty um, extensively over the years. Um, and we've had a lot of good rapport with various government ministers over the years. And I think we are seen as part of the uh, firearm scene in New Zealand. We also have NGO, non-government organisational status with the UN, which means that we can comment, and we did comment very effectively on things like the Arms Trade Treaty, which came into effect into New Zealand last year. We were part of that effort to make sure that New Zealand firearm owners were not disadvantaged. Um, also, in the about 2003 or four, we started attending World Forum and Shooting Sports meetings, um, which are held in uh, Las Vegas, where the SHOT Show is, and also Nuremberg, where the IWA, the German arms show is held every year and we became a member there and we've upgraded that to full membership because what the average New Zealand guy or girl fails to appreciate is we are up against a very organised anti-firearm lobby mm. people of like Rebecca Peters of IANSA in Australia and uh, Hillary Clinton, God help gun owners in America if Hillary, Hillary Clinton becomes the next president um, she definitely has a big anti-firearm agenda. Uh, Yet she's pro-aliens. Yes. I read uh, that. I read that Hillary Clinton is pro-aliens. She wants to release all the alien files. I wonder if those yep. aliens have got firearms. Well, I would say quite a few would have. Um, <laughs> and um, then, you know, in Europe, you know, there's a lot of very self-righteous usually associated with the Labour and or Green parties, but not always to be also true, who don't um, like firearms and or hunting. And remember that anti-hunting organisations like uh, PETA and that in America Mm. are also very anti-firearm. And you say you have this worldwide, I won't say conspiracy, but you certainly have worldwide organisations who are, you know, are out to get your last firearm. Sorry, that's the truth. Um, and they have this totally mistaken utopia, utopian belief that, you know, if we eliminate them, well, the world will be so much of a better place. But one is that the dictators of the world, and there's still a few around, like Mr. Mugabe in Zimbabwe and our good friend in North Korea and a few other places, are never going to come to that party mm. for obvious reasons. And also, you have to look at other governments and things. The government doesn't actually have an obligation to individually protect you legally. Um, And if it was so wonderful, why are so many people all around the world regularly assaulted, robbed, burgled, whatever? Um, Police do a good job most of the time, but they can't be there all of the time. Um, and that comes out very strongly in America um, in particular but even here um, regardless of what the police say as the law currently stands you do have quite extensive rights to use a firearm in self-defence in New Zealand this will upset a few people but that is the legal truth Um, the police most probably won't like me for saying that 
but um, nor me for broadcasting it potentially. <laughs> yeah, but um, but you know, I'm sorry. Try and get a policeman at one o'clock next Saturday night. Mm. Um, you know, it doesn't often happen. Sorry, and if you live in a remote area, rural, and we are a rural country, you're on your own. That's a, that's the hard truth. I mean, some people wouldn't like that, but that's the truth. But so we need firearms in New Zealand for a whole variety of purposes. The big one is not target shooting, is hunting, recreational hunting. Yeah. Most probably followed by pest control, target shooting, and collecting. And I'm when I say target shooting, I'm, I'm not differentiating between shotgun, rifle, and or pistol. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying target shooting. Um, and so there's a lot of valid reasons to own a firearm in New Zealand, including if you just want to be a collector and and pat them, so to speak, um, and, and, and learn their history. There's, 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 you know, there's quite a few valid reasons to own a firearm, um, and we do. It is. I will suggest to you that firearms were used recreationally long before the first football was kicked in this country. Now that's going to upset a whole lot of people, but that's the truth. You're probably people, right. Just thinking about that, it, you, you know, the, you know, yeah, no, I'd you agree. Know, I, I, you know, I tend to tell you what you need to know, not what you want to always want to hear. Mm. Uh, and now, I'm not saying that because I'm against rugby. I'm not. I mean, I don't play it, never have, but I'm not against it or anything like that. But what I'm trying to say is there's a history thing here. Mm. The first firearms came into New Zealand with the early whalers and settlers before the Treaty of Waitangi, mm. basic muzzle loaders. So we have most probably had firearms here for close to 200 years in this country alone. Hmm. Most people don't realise that. No, that, that's certainly a part of our history, and hunting is part of our history as well. Well, that's why we have all these animals and birds in New Zealand. They were introduced for sport. Hmm. It wasn't to save the species from extinction. The fact that we've done that with the Himalayan tar is almost a byproduct. Hmm. Or, um, or enabled hunters to have a chamois hunt in New Zealand at a price they can afford. And that includes hunters coming down from the northern hemisphere, um, or that we've got, you know, currently six species of deer regularly that we hunt, and a few that didn't make the grade. But that's life. Um, you know, I mean, mule deer were introduced in New Zealand, but they didn't take. Mm. Um, the moose didn't take us. No, I'm not blaming the animal. That's just what it is. Um, but although there's some conspiracies around the old moose, isn't there? <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean. I'm not saying there isn't anything left at all in Fiordland, but you'd have to say they haven't been a success. Sorry. And, no. I'm not, <laughs> and I, I have met Ken Tustin a number of times, and I'm not putting him down. I'm just saying if there's one or two left, great, and I mean it sincerely, honestly. But I don't think I'll be applying for a mis payment anytime soon. <laughs> um, but moving on, we have wild pigs, mm-hmm. um, feral goats, feral sheep, uh Rabbits, hares, um, possums sure came in for fur, not for sport, but the rabbits and hares came in for sport initially and food. Um, a big variety of game birds. I mean, let's, what people forget is that the game birds here, the number one target, the mallard, is not indigenous to New Zealand. It was introduced. Mm. Fine, I don't have a problem with that. Same for the Canadian goose. I mean, some farmers now most probably would love to, you know, give... Uh, President Roosevelt are kicking the ball, so to speak, because of all the damage that geese do to the South Island High Country and places. Mm. Um, but having said that, um, they are here. They are part of the landscape now. And in fact, here's an interesting thought for you in terms of that. If you asked a whole lot of teenage kids today, if you added up all the game birds that we hunt, chucker, quail, pheasant, Canadian geese, mallard, and swan, black swan, and asked them, a lot of kids today, are they indigenous to New Zealand? You might be somewhat horrified at the answers that you'd get from any of the kids. They view them as part of our wildlife. Mm. And, and uh, I understand, even the uh, talking about introduced species, we've also got a couple of Australian ones that are almost considered to be native too, aren't we? Although they're not game birds, they're, they're certainly introduced yeah. animals, aren't they? Yeah, and we've also got, you know, what are the three or four species of wallaby. And remember that the reason that the palmer or white-throated wallaby now thrives in Australia 
is because the Australians wiped them out on the mainland and we sent back some from Cowrow Island to Australia about 20 years ago because people found that the species on Cowrow Island, or one of the species, I think there's two, was the endangered or almost the extinct Palmer or white-throated wallaby. So we very successfully have stopped that species from being extinct in Australia. Um, they may do the same for us one day. Uh, not quite <laughs> sure was what, but that's another story. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we just forget that the hunting heritage of this country goes back yep. at least minimum of over 150 years. Mm. And, you, you know, you read the book... Um, of that famous high country station, I can't think of the name of it. I've got it in my library. The lady, you know, uh, Lady Baker. I just can't think of the name of the book. Mm-hmm. And talking about even in the 1860s, how the wild pigs in Canterbury, uh, or Barker, I think it was, not Baker, Barker, um, how, what a menace they were to the farming already. Mm. Uh, that's how successfully they colonised, you know, parts of the rural hinterland. And a friend of mine who's a wild game control guy just a couple of months ago was called in to shoot wild pigs who were eating lambs just um, near Ranfurly in central Otago just less than two months ago. Mm. He took out 122 in, in one day, just over Jeez. one day. Because um, they were just following the boars in particular, were just following the pregnant ewes around, waiting for the lamb to drop and then chasing the... the um, you were away and eating the, eating the freshly bo- freshly born lamb, and you know, when today a, a lamb for the export traders could be worth over well over a hundred dollars, you know, that adds up pretty quickly. Yeah, it does if the old pigs taking them out. Now, just yeah. just heading back to Corflu. Um, yep. One thing a lot of hunters or firearms owners struggle with is. First of all, they don't understand: is it a membership-based organisation? Is it a political lobby group? Is it both? Both. Um, yeah, we, we, have, we have a membership based for clubs like NZDA and NZ Pistol, etc. And we also, I think from memory, the fees either 20 or $25 on a yearly basis. Um, and we have another rate for dealers, you know, retailers or whatever. Um, it's both. And it is definitely a lobby group. And it's primarily a lobby group because the people that make up Colfo and particularly the executive, we believe that we do, even though we in law we don't have a a right like the Second Amendment to own firearms. We believe that we do have, you know, the right to own firearms as such. And uh, um, we obviously politically have to fight to retain that because hunting and firearms ownership makes up, it's sort of like a silent majority, actually. When you work out, we have now, I think... I think it's just over 242,000 people aged 16 and over who hold a firearms licence. Well, it's, now, it's over 300,000 New Zealanders identify as hunters. Yep. And mm. remember, to get a firearms licence here isn't a five-minute exercise. Mm. And um, so we've had 242,000 current people holding a firearms licence. Now, what other sport in this country has... Aged over 16 and over, 242,000 members. You tell me. It's not rugby and it's not cricket. There's nothing. Mm. No, I don't. I don't have another answer for you. I was thinking, and there must be something. But no, you're probably right. It is. It is definitely. Uh, it's, it's a huge group of people, and there's a lot of hunters, obviously, that don't own firearms uh, to, to make up those numbers. But of course, Corflu only represents those that are legally allowed to. Correct. Yep, yep. One, one thing I did struggle with on your website, on the Corfu website, yep. not yours, was it was the birth given right, and I don't personally subscribe to that. I think that it's something that you. So what was it? Did you get, what, what did you say? The... It was something along the lines of, and I don't have it in front of me now, that it's your birthright to, uh, or. Well, I think natural. it is because, you know, we they've been part of this country for a long time. It, this was not something that just arrived, you know, 20 years ago on on, on a super freighter. Yeah, but firearms, don't you take and, on the opinion that I have to earn the right to own a firearm? I have to pass the test yeah, and, I, and all but, of that. I don't, I don't consider yeah. that then 
something that I'm naturally allowed to do without any pre-vetting? No, I, I see where you're coming from. And, you know, I think we have to, you know, vet people and everything like that. But what, we are, but what we are saying, though, is that you have the right to be part of that system. Okay. That you, you know, they, they don't have a right to say that nobody in New Zealand can own a firearm. Absolutely not. And it's a tricky one because some people get horrified because we're going to become like America, aren't we? Um, no, because there's a whole lot of different socio-economic factors that have come into it. Um, mainly, I suspect, actually, when I look at it from the welfare state angle, remember that one of the big differences between America and New Zealand is one is that now the average wage in New Zealand is higher than America. But secondly, America doesn't do welfare. The American attitude is well, if you're starving and, and sleeping in the gutter, maybe if you're, we're not talking people here who are perhaps born defective or something, but the average person, well, maybe, sir, lady, you need to get off your ass and get with the program because that's how they view it. Um, Americans are great believers in self-help. And, you know, if you're not driving a Rolls Royce, whose fault is that? Um now, we all know that not everybody's going to end up driving a Rolls Royce, to be fair, equally fair about that too. But they have a huge self-help attitude, and that is the way their constitution is also written. Um, and that's why, apart from California, where there's a limited amount of welfare, but you go to a lot of the good old boys' country down in Louisiana or up into Montana or that, and the word welfare is equated to communism. And, and and socialism and it just doesn't go with the American psyche. You know, you know, if you're fat, well, maybe you should start running everywhere and then get rid of the problem. It's not the government's fault because they gave you cheap lettuce or something. Um, they have a whole different psyche. Hmm. And also, unfortunately, at times, America is, I think, the home of the, of the society of instant gratification. So that also creates problems, and we're getting that here. But we have a more, a different outlook, and I think it's tied up with our social structure. You know, we have a, um, you know, access to medicine and all that sort of things, so whether you're earning or not earning, et cetera, et cetera, and, and mental health care. And I think the big one is mental health, because I think a lot of firearm incidents, not all, not all, absolutely, can be. Um, I'm not talking about your hardened criminals who have just busted out of a bank robbery or something like that, but a lot of other things can be put down to lack of psychiatric care in America. Uh, I mean, it's available if you can afford it, but if you can't afford it or somebody's not going to pay for it, tough luck. Um, and this became very obvious when we had the big mass shooting in Norway a couple of years ago. Mm. The Norwegian government, remember this is the biggest mass shooting ever recorded in modern history by one individual didn't say we have to change all the firearm laws in Norway, and we are going to. They identified it correctly as substantially a mental health problem. And also, Norway doesn't have the same punitive justice system that America has. The American justice system is very punitive tracing its roots back, I guess, to the Old West. So in America, you just look recently at that schoolteacher who had consenting sex with a couple of teenage schoolboys, and did they enjoy the experience? Well, they reckon they did. I'm not going to say they did or they didn't. She gets 35 years jail. Hmm. Um, because that's America. Um, I mean, I'm not saying she shouldn't have got a good boot up the, you know, up the backside or something, but 35 years jail for having consenting sex with two schoolboys mm, doesn't quite ring true somehow, if you know what I mean. Uh, so I think America's problems with firearms do evolve, are very much tied up rather with the upbringing of the American nation. You know, you're on your own, you do it, you don't wait for the police, but the laws of America are, on self-defense are quite liberal. Yeah. Um, and um, 
you know, you sort it out yourself if you can. That is, I'm not saying you can or you should, but you do have that legal right to do so in America. And actually, here in New Zealand, as I said, we still do too. Although the, a lot of people would frown on that, but uh, I don't think it's entirely wrong uh, if the cops aren't going to show. Um, I, you know, I've experienced it personally. Um, they don't always show. They might say they do, but you know, when somebody tried to hijack my vehicle a few years ago, I dealt with it. And when I rang the cops on triple one, I was told, "Are you okay?" "Yes, I am." And I said, what are you going to do about it? Mr. Clark, you're in a remote location. It's Friday night and we're busy. Click. Mm. Um, so, uh, so pulling that back to Corflu, though, what, what, is yep. it, what does it stand for in that case? Is this... Well, it stands for the right that we, we have the right to lobby, mm. like everybody else does, yep. and that we're exercising that right. Um, and that the government... You know, if you go back to the early principles of British justice, because we substantially follow the British judicial system and Blackstone and people like that, governments really effectively only govern with the consent of the governed. Quite right. Or otherwise, you end up with civil war. Mm-hmm. Now, if we accept that firearms are part of the New Zealand scene, that they aren't going to go away, sorry, and I don't think they are, let's be quite fair about that. No. Um, if you've got lobby groups with people expressing rights, and, you know, rights are an interesting thing because, you know, we have the world's most draconian uh, bicycle, you know, helmet safety rule law in the world. But that was just the efforts of some people who reckon it was a great thing. Well, it's had some advantages, but it also has some disadvantages. Um, and But that wasn't an intrinsic thing. And bicycles and firearms... Uh, optionals, mm. um, but if we accept that they're both items are part of the New Zealand scene, and they are, that means that people have the right to lobby for either less or more restrictions on them, mm. or how they're used. And the same with, you know, off-road vehicles. You know, some greenies hate the idea that you drive up the Ohura Valley or, or something similar, or the Ohuri in a four-wheel drive. Other people think it's the best thing since sliced bread. So we get back to democratic principles. And if we accept, and I think we have to, that firearms are part of the New Zealand scene, they are not going to disappear. There's a lot of people, not just a thousand or two. So we're not a special interest group. We're a major sector of modern New Zealand society. So therefore... If we want to lobby for our continued access to those firearms and the ability to use them, why is it different to anything else? Mm. I don't think it is. Um, I think we've come up in an area of social conditioning, particularly in the last 30-odd years, where increasingly anybody who uses a firearm for anything is, oh, that's terrible. Um, I know a lot of gun gun owners or firearm owners who don't even like their neighbour Knowing that they have a firearm, because either somebody might burgle them, or the neighbour thinks that you know the guy's going to become a raving lunatic the next day. He has a glass of wine and shoot shoot up the neighbourhood, um, and that's rather sad actually, because the licensed firearm owners of New Zealand commit very very few crimes with their firearms. I'm not saying that they never do anything; that's not true. But most of the people who misuse firearms either steal them or buy them on the black market or both, um, and they buy them for criminal intent. Like, you know, if you've got a nice cannabis patch, you might want to protect it, not surprisingly from the police, because that's an occupational job hazard, but from a, a rival gang. Mm. Or if you're a dealer of methamphetamine, you you know, and, you, and you're mainly dealing in cash, and you might have anything up from ten to 100,000 cash in your house or wherever you live, you know, and the guys know that, you know, young Pete down the road steals net or ice or something. So he might feel that he needs a couple of guns not to actually protect himself from the police or the likes of you and I, but from somebody saying, well, we'll just go and knock that bastard over and, and take the cash because mm. that's what criminals do to each other. I mean, it's just a fact of life. Or otherwise, you know, you own a nice little restaurant and you know you have a lot of cash taking so we'll go and rob you or 
anything like that, you know. But that's not your average firearms owner. I'm not saying that none of them have ever done that. That wouldn't be true. But that's not really the problem. It's 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 the definite hardcore criminal element. And you only have to look at a lot of the criminals who are in the various jails in this country. A lot of them, you know, you know, you're in retail and other things. I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'm an imported distributor. But we also have people who are career criminals in this country. And just as you and I went, you know, I went to, I went, did an apprenticeship, or you did something similar, or went to uni or something. Mm. We have guys who just become criminals, yeah. Um, and they just regard that as a lifestyle option because it pays. Um, and we forget that often. That um, there's a hardcore gang of criminals in every country. Some are opportunists. Some just see it as a way of getting a good living. Easily, I guess is the way I'd describe it. So that's where a lot of your misuse of weapons turns up. Um, yeah, the average guy, I'm not going to say, could never, ever be a problem. But you don't need a high-capacity semi-automatic to do a lot of damage. There's plenty of other firearms out there that will do it, particularly if you know what you're doing with it. Um, so I think that firearms are now and I think the executive would agree with me here, are part of the social scene. Mm. They're not an add-on. They've been here longer than um, power boating, yachting, skiing, all those other things. And if people can lobby who like those sports for their sport, why shouldn't shooters do the same thing? Mm. But I suppose what's the benefit? First of all, can I as an individual be a member of Corflu? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And... And what's the benefit to me as an individual giving you my well, $25 means, a year? Okay, for your $25 a year, it means you've got an active executive who are constantly monitoring what's going on in the firearm scene in New Zealand mm -hmm. and that we do our best. I'm not saying we're perfect or we win everything. We don't. Um, to lobby the government on anything to do with firearms. Uh, matters, whether it's the importation of ammunition or firearms. And, you know, I'm also, as the current president of Colfo, um, the police have a firearms advisory committee, um, which where I'm on as the Colfo representative and the other people from the trade and other shootings, shooting disciplines are on. Mm -hmm. And we try to make sure that if there are going to be any laws passed, that we're involved in their construction and that they're sensible and not a knee-jerk reaction. Now, I'll give you a good example of this just a couple of years ago that I did on behalf of Colfo. The Dunedin City Council wanted to limit the amount of ammunition that you could have at home substantially and, and or powder for reloading. And I went down and I pointed out that under the law legally in New Zealand at that time, and I don't think it's changed, I'd have to check that to be sure, we you are allowed, if you have a firearms license, up to 20 tonnes of ammunition in your house, okay? Is it 20 uh, tonnes? Yes. Your insurance company may want to dispute that with you in terms of premium, <laughs> but that's a, that's but a, that's different, a different story. That's, yeah, yeah. that's a different story. I'm not discussing that side of it. Um, or in the back shed or whatever the hell, um, as long as it's suitably stored. Hmm. And the most amazing thing was, so I went down and armed, armed with some information, and I asked them, on what basis did they want to change it? Well, it's a good idea. I said, well, what is the basis for the idea? Well, it's a good idea. And we had this little stupid circular argument. But in the end, they realized that they had no real basis, but it seems good. It's socially justified. Why? Well, it's a good idea. And you just kept going around to the stupid bloody reason. It's a good idea. And I asked for the scientific basis. Is there, is there a scientific basis for this? No, but it's a good idea. Yeah. Well, I said to them, no, this is just a matter of opinion. And I reckon it's a shit idea. And you can't tell me why we should change. Why should it should change? And when a number of other people came along and pointed out a few facts of life, nothing changed. But if that law had gone through, not only would individuals have been restricted into what they could legally do in the Dunedin area, and then by default, other councils will save New Zealand. Um, uh, also, a lot of the shops and the amount of stock they could hold would be severely restricted. Mm. And there was no, there was nothing they could 
pinned it on that made any scientific sense. It was an emotion. You know, you love green, I love blue. We're both right. You know, it's colours. Um, I'm not better than you because I love blue and you love green or vice versa. It's just what it is. And uh, we must remember that shooting sports are like that. You like rowing? Great. Go for it. Um, but why should I be penalised because I like shooting? Or if, I, if you want to get into deaths, okay, cars and off-road vehicles kill far more people than firearms ever do. So do we ban all off-road vehicles or cars? Because if you want to save the population, you're not going to save many by banning shooting legally, but you'll save a hell of a lot by banning cars. But no, that's... Um, a political hot potato, so that ain't even going to surface. Mm. Or if you want to, if you want another one, if you want to get a permit and build a service station and store a hundred thousand litres of very volatile petrol on a street corner in the middle of a Tauranga or something like that, most probably not too hard because it's petrol and everybody has a car and or diesel and needs it. But you want to store five tons of gunpowder on the same street corner? Holy shit! The town will disintegrate. Social conditioning. Social conditioning. Um, and one of the reasons that we've got more restrictions around the world, and not just in New Zealand, is that outside of North America, the average firearm owner is quite apathetic. Unfortunately for everybody who's involved. They but don't but isn't, that, isn't that more to do that we're not, as firearms owners, particularly here... I don't see us being a, a particularly organised group. I look no, at the NZDA, not. and in my opinion, they're probably the closest to that. But yep. but I look at Corflu, and I would I would honestly suspect your core membership or your personal membership is relatively low in comparison to the number of people that own firearms. Would I be wrong? Oh, it is. It? Yeah, it is. No, no, no. You'd be right. Uh, no, you'd be right. Um, and, and is that because as a, as, if I look at it now and I said, if I want to give you guys $25, what do you do for me that you're not going to do if I'm not a member? Well, there's that on it, so you get a free lunch. Um, yeah, I'm just saying. But, how do, how do yep. you entice me to be a member? That's, that's probably the, the big question. Yeah, okay. Well, what it is, it's like, I guess it's, you know, that famous TV ad a few years ago, Rust Never Sleeps. And the anti-firearm lobby isn't going away anytime soon. If it ever. Um, so what it means is, are you going to lose all your firearms by 9 o'clock tomorrow morning? No, absolutely not. And I agree with that. But could, by the time, I don't know whether you have a family or you have any boys or girls or whatever, but I'll just say that maybe, you know, by the time, say, you're, if you have any children, they're 16 or 18 and want to get a firearm, mm. the ball game may have changed to what you knew and certainly to what I knew. Oh, I suspect it will. And the reason it will change substantially is because of apathy, because the anti-gun people are getting more vociferous. Let's look at the Green Party. Mm. And they're just quietly beavering away. They know it's what we call, like, um, you know, it's a hundred-year war. They know that. You know, they're not going to get overnight victory tomorrow morning. They know that. But they know that, particularly here, um, people are somewhat apathetic and politically we're not a very strong nation on, on most subjects regardless of what it is. No, maybe the, we're not. Maybe the anti-abortion thing wasn't one, but overall we're not that. And so they just quietly work away. Yeah, but I suppose, Paul, what I'm getting at is if I join, how does that increase my voice? Do I get a say? Yes, it does, because the big thing about politics is numbers. Politics is a numbers game. Hmm. And if I can go to the Prime Minister, and I was discussing firearms with him briefly the other week at a cocktail function for about 10 minutes or five minutes, whatever it was, but you get the idea. If I say that I represent 300,000 people, oh shit, mm. you could do damage to our election chances. That's what it really boils down to. Mm. See, I, if I've... every firearm owner in New Zealand was a member of Colfo, mm. would we have a bigger presence? Yes, we'd have more money. We could employ... A full-time secretariat. I don't mean ten dozens of people, by the way. I'm just saying one or two. And we could be constantly making sure we don't get shafted as a sport, because it won't happen. 
it's like this Waro thing in the Rohinis and that, and, and the Tauruas. It doesn't happen in one day. And I remember years ago when, um, before National got thrown out of Parliament, um, you know, and Labour came in with the 2001 or something like that, um, whatever it was, or 99, whatever year it was, I remember then that the government of the time, the National Government, and with Mr Dunn, were going to introduce a deer plan. And I remember hearing that Doc and Forrest and Bird were just about beside themselves with rage um, because the deer should just be exterminated. Hmm. And one of the things that came out of it was if we can just make bloody sure that the National can't get it through in this term, that was the term before they went out of power, we know that it will never go through under Labour who come in. And that's exactly what happened. Hmm. It took another... Went through last year, so it wanted to take about another 12 years or more for it to, um, for the deer plan, etc., to come into thing. And remember, the anti people who don't like firearms are smart. The biggest justification here, and it is accepted in the courts, I want to go hunting, so I want a rifle. Mm. I'm keeping it simple, but in that context. Yeah. But imagine if all the deer vanished, etc. So what, I, what I'm getting from you, though, with Corflu is that it, it's very, very hard because probably firearms owners would join in better numbers if you had more political sway, but then you need yep. more numbers to have it. It's like saying, I, yeah, want yeah, heat before I, yeah, well, I want more heat before I put wood on the fire. And yeah, um, yes, it is. It is like that. And politically, most Kiwi guys and girls are somewhat apathetic on any issue. Not well, it's because we've firearms. got it pretty cruisy, haven't we? We have, and we've had it pretty crazy for a long time. Um, and what people don't realise is that our firearm laws are looked at very positively by most of the most of our firearms of, laws. Yeah, um, of the Western world. Yeah. Yep. Uh, um, see, we have some people say, "Oh, America's just you know you can own lots of guns here." Well, legally here, on Class A guns, you can own any amount you can afford to buy and store. And store. Yeah. I mean, if, if you had you could legally own 10,000 ACAT firearms in this country, including semi-automatics. Mm. There's no law that says you can't. Um, and when it comes to collecting of, of military, like people don't realize in this country, if Uncle Sam would sell me the latest Abraham's battle tank and I had the money to buy it, I don't, by the way, <laughs> I can legally own that tank if I'm a tank collector. Mm. Okay? There's no other country in the world apart from America, but in America you can only own American tanks. If I said, well, actually, I'm in New Zealand and I want the Russian T-75 or the T-82, I think it is now, the latest one, and an Abrahams, and I want a Leopard Mark III or IV, et cetera, et cetera. If I had the money and the governments would agree to sell them to me, I can have them. Hmm. In America, you can have as many Abrahams as you can afford to buy, but you can't have any other imported ones because they're dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, seriously, I'm not yep. making it up. I'm quite serious. Um, so when it comes to collecting, or if I said, well, I'm going to actually buy a frigate complete with guns and things. Now, I can't have the ammo for the guns and I can't have missiles, but I can have a frigate. I don't even need anybody's approval to buy a frigate unless it's got guns on it. And then if I'm a collector and I can afford to pay for it, I can have it. Mm. Um, and so we actually have some of the most liberal laws in the world here and we don't have a problem um, you know I've tried to tell Heckler and Koch I could sell far more assault rifles to collectors here than I'll ever sell to users mm. and they just tell me Paul that's nuts well I even said it recently to um, I'm not the agent or I was but I'm not at the moment to Dylan with their minigun I said the biggest market for miniguns in New Zealand is not the military and they looked at me and I said we can most probably sell a ten to the military and a hundred to collectors. Hmm. And if you went legally, collectors in New Zealand can own a Dillon minigun. I said yes, legally they can. Hmm. If you're a collector of the old machine guns, and there are be at least a hundred collectors. And I said, man, that's amazing. And I said, I pay for it. The money's not the problem for these guys. They've got money, mate. Believe me, there's. Hmm. I've never seen so much money in the industry as there is now. Hmm. Um, and they were like. Oh, and I said, well, we have a lot of collectors here. I mean, 
the most current, the most logical one I can put to you, that at the moment, you know, down in Christchurch, there's, I think it's two or three, there's certainly two, maybe three, I don't know for sure, chieftain battle tanks from the British Army, okay, that this guy runs as an amusement park. And he bought them off the British Army legally when they upgraded, okay? Yeah. And the British government took about three years to grant an export license because they kept checking with the young government. Do you know this guy is buying three chieftains, wants to buy three chieftains, or just say three, <laughs> maybe two? Yes, we know why. We've given him a permit. But you're insane. You've given him a permit to buy tanks. Well, we know what he's going to do with them. The guns won't be fired. They're deactivated. And he's just going to have an amusement park. But he's buying a tank. Well, we don't care. Mm. It's only a motorised bulldozer, really. Um, <laughs> it's a flash tractor, man. <laughs> yeah, um... And in the end, apparently, it went on for about three years. I was arguing, I don't know, maybe it was only two, but you get the idea. It went on for a long time. Mm. And then it was like, well, if you're that stupid as a government, that's New Zealand, we'll, we'll grant the export permit. So you got them. Mm. And has anything gone wrong? Huh. Is it a good bit of military? Wonderful. And you can pay $50 and go for a ride around a 100-acre amusement park? Bloody great. Mm. Um, because remember, we've been at war as a country from 1860s, from the 1860s, first with the Maoris, you can argue that, but I'm just saying this is what happened, and you, and you shouldn't change history because it's politically inconvenient. The Boer War, mm. remember that's why the Seddon Range at Trattenham exists, because the money was raised by the people of Wellington to help the government, not the other way around. First World War, Second World War, Korea, Malaya, Vietnam, Yugoslavia, Kosovo. Mm. Um, then, of course, over in Timor Malesti, you know, East Timor, mm. um, Afghanistan. This country's been at war a lot. Mm. For its and there's quite a few or... there that we, we, you haven't mentioned. Yeah, well, I'm not saying, so no, you know, the, well, mm. I'm just giving you the obvious ones. Mm. Um, but, you know, uh, I mean, warfare is part of this country's history again. Like it or love it, but, um, or hate it, but it is. It's part of our history. Mm. Um, so it's quite natural. That guys, because relatively very few women fired guns in the military. I'm not saying none did. But um, firearms are an integral part of our history. Mm. Initially for things like whaling. Um, then, And remember, the Maoris were very quick to appreciate them and went, and went to London to buy them so they could have the strongest tribe. Sorry, that's the truth. Um, and then we get into, you know, the Maori Wars, and then we get into serious, serious, um, recreational hunting and pest control by the 1860s. Uh, and that's that's continued ever since. I mean, well, you know, as deer numbers built up, more people shot them. Um, and bird shooting, same thing, you know. Go out and get 100 mallards before before breakfast on opening season, on opening day, and the Waikato or something. Uh, and it's just gone on. We are a nation of hunters. Hmm. It's an integral part of the history of this country. It's not something that was foisted on us accidentally 10 years ago or no. something like that. We've been using firearms for hunting in this country for over 150 years. Hmm. And very few other sports can claim that type of heritage. Sorry. I don't care what the sport is. Um, firearms are an integral part of the New Zealand landscape. And, 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 lo and long may it continue, Paul, because it's... Uh... I, I think that you know history has been made every day with these with, with firearms, particularly um, both yeah. both good and bad. But you're right; they are they're an integral part of our history. Now, if if someone wants to find out a little bit more about Corflu, where do they go? Go to their website and send us an email. Hmm. Go to our website and send us an email. And if they and, want to become uh, a member, they can do that online. Or again, is it an email process? It's an email process. We, we're, we're in the process of upgrading all of that. Um, to be fair. Uh, and I'm going to, it's one of my jobs, I'm just doing a few internal changes in the system. Um, but no, we are going to have a better website and the ability to do so. Uh, we used to have a secretary that fell over a couple of years ago for a whole lot of reasons. Um, and we're, I'm sort of rebuilding the organisation so that we can handle those sort of things better. Mm. And, you know, we, we've got some money in the kitty. Uh, but we're always happy to also, you know, accept donations or everything like that because when you start talking to lawyers and everything like that, none of that stuff comes cheap, as you can appreciate. Absolutely. Um, and also the other thing, if we can build the base of it and get a bit more money in the bank, so to speak, um, 
it's really good because one of the things that politicians respect is power and money. If you say to them, well, we're, we disagree with this, you, or to the police of your interpretation of this law, so we've hired a QC and we're going to court to discuss this. Oh, hmm. You know, it's one thing if the police tell you one thing, but if you say, well, that's okay, you know, we are a democracy, so we can go to court and discuss this, can't we? Hmm. You often, you get a lot more respect. Hmm. And one of the things we are seeing in New Zealand is that a lot more firearm owners are bringing private cases against the police. Um, you can argue that, but the reality is that we have a democracy. Yep. And the police only uphold and enforce the law. They don't make it. And everybody has the right to challenge their interpretation of the law. Mm. That doesn't mean you're going to win, by the way. But you certainly have the legal right to do so. Mm. And, and, and that's a... And that's a keystone of a democracy. And, and on that note, Paul, you've been a great interview. Uh, certainly, uh, it's been a long show, and uh, I hope to catch up with you again very, very soon. The, you've also well, if got... you're ever down this way, come and see us. Yeah, look, um, there's, I'm sure there's a coffee and a beer somewhere. Oh, well, that'd be good. Um, yeah, no, well, hopefully I did answer your questions reasonably well. Oh, oh, you did, and we had a great interview, and we'll catch up again. That's us for another week. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can win that great prize from NZ Outdoor Hunting Magazine. All you've got to do is be active with the show. Thank you for holding on for the last hour. Be careful out there, guys, and good hunting. Broadcasting from an undisclosed location, from a secret hunting spot known only to him and the guy who told him about it, and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.